normally I would say that if I'm looking at you, I'm not just looking at you, I'm just making some eye contact, but with Kevin being the only one in that section, <laughs> if I'm looking at you, it's because it's I'm looking at you. <laughs> Let's go to the Lord in prayer as we come to his word this morning. Father, what a joyful truth that is. That our hope is in Christ alone. Not in ourselves. Not in our acts of obedience. And hearts of submission. Not in our lack of obedience or fickleness of heart, but our hope is in Christ and in Christ alone. And that really is a comforting reality because there's no one like Christ who lived so perfectly and died so victoriously for our sin, and rose again on the third day. In Jesus' name, amen. We come back to 1 Samuel 15. We are looking at the priority of God's Word, part 2. God prioritizes obedience In the life of a believer. If you have faith in God, if you belong to God, God demands that you obey. And it is not optional, it is a command from God Himself, from Yahweh of hosts, the one who holds all authority. And if you are not willing to obey Him, if you don't have a disposition towards submission, He does not want your formal worship. This is the truth that is communicated to us through 1 Samuel 15. God gives Saul a clear command And the issue for Saul was not that he didn't hear what God had to say to him. But it is that he didn't listen. And the consequences for Saul are devastating and and are also insightfully dramatic. If in chapter 13, where Saul's disobedience is first highlighted... If, Saul, if, if chapter 13 is highlighting Saul's loss of a dynasty, in chapter 15, it highlights the loss of his own personal kingship. And really, the rest of 1 Samuel is the outworking of how Saul loses it all. And the drama that unfolds in 1 Samuel 15 is is meant to give us insight into the seriousness of listening to the Word of God. To listen so as to obey it. We are examining this chapter under seven headings. Last time we looked at two of them. We saw in verses... 1 through 3, God's frightening authority, the absolute authority of God's word should, should strike the right type of fear in its readers as we consider the total command of Yahweh over all people. He is the Yahweh of hosts, the sovereign one, the unmatched king of kings, the one who holds all the armies of heaven at his disposal. And he tells Saul, I want you to wipe out an entire people.
people group. He demands holy genocide. Now, people want to go after the goodness of God in light of His wrath, and I think that's why people so often try to undermine the character of God by questioning His goodness in the face of His wrath. They want the fluff because they don't want to obey God. Because they don't fear Him. And I think that's why at times we may have a little more difficulty with God's rightful vengeance on a nation than with Saul's partial obedience. And also just to keep in mind in relation to the difficulty of the those types of passages where God commands the entire annihilation of a people group. This goes all the way back to Genesis 12 in God's covenant with Abraham when he tells him, hey, those who bless you, I will bless. Those who curse you, I will curse. And the Amalekites had cursed the nation of Israel on their way up from Egypt. And God gave them 300 years to repent. They did not. And generation after generation of that people group lived in open rebellion to Yahweh. And so God, though gracious, He's also a God of wrath. There's a frightening authority when it comes to God. And it should instill a holy fear in us. Not only that, we considered Saul's trademark atrocity. And... This is, this is Saul. He gets up right away, summons the troops, gets them ready, goes out to battle, even shows some compassion on the Kenites who did not uh, show, uh, they did not mistreat the nation of Israel. He allows them to flee so that then he can do his work of destroying the Amalekites. When you get to verse 8 and 9, after it says that he defeated the Amalekites in verse 7, it says he, he captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive. And verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, oxen, fatlings, lambs, and so on. And it says they were not willing to destroy them utterly. utterly. It was a matter of the will. It was an issue of the heart. This is Saul's trademark move. The atrocity of almost listening to the words of Yahweh. You might say that partial obedience is Saul's middle name. And so what does God do? What does God do in the face of his sin? Well, he graciously intervenes with his word. And he does so to inform his prophet and to offer repentance to Saul and to show that God is not through with his people. And we see that in his gracious accommodation, which is number three. His gracious accommodation, verses 10 through 11. Notice how God in His Word reaches down to our level in order to reveal His truth to us. And by the way, that is what all of Scripture is. Verses 10 and 11. Then the Word of Yahweh came to Samuel. God's always the one who initiates. Then the Word of Yahweh came to Samuel saying, I regret that I have made Saul king. For he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. Samuel was distressed and cried out to Yahweh all night. Then the word of Yahweh came to Samuel. Oh, how accommodating God's word is to man. He did not leave us to ourselves. What a gift of grace that, that does, God does not leave His people to themselves in the midst of sin and turmoil and distress. That in the midst of our sin and rebellion and pride, it meets us where we are at to confront us with God's view of our sin. 
And God does not sugarcoat the situation. He speaks with figurative and forceful language to get his point across. God says it like it is, so to speak, so that the seriousness is understood. And he wants to directly confront Saul's direct disobedience. And that is what Yahweh does here with Saul. While Saul is busy, as verse 12 shows us, setting up a monument to himself in his pride and destroying the Amalekites and capturing their king. On the heels of his, at best, partial obedience to God's command, God's word comes to his prophet graciously revealing his staggering perspective of Saul's actions. Look at what he says in verse 11. I regret that I have made Saul king. Where have we heard that language before? Well, the only other place is in the days of Noah. Before God drowned the entire world in a flood because of its rampant wickedness. What was God's perfect evaluation of mankind at that time? Every thought and intention of man's heart was only evil continually in Genesis chapter 6. Total depravity of man. Here God is making a striking comparison of Saul and his disobedience to the wickedness of man's heart in the days of Noah. God's view of Saul's reign is the same view he expressed then about the total depravity of man. God is saying that Saul's partial obedience is as regrettable and shameful as worldwide rampant vileness in God's sight. Let this difficult statement that God makes sting our hearts for a moment. God hates partial obedience. He does not take pleasure in our half-hearted submission. And He does not take lightly our sin, or any sin for that matter. He has gone to great detail to show us how much He despises sin throughout His Word. From the worldwide flood, where he drowned everybody except for eight people in his holy wrath, to his holy genocidal demands against the wicked nations that surrounded and opposed Israel, to the unleashing of his eternal wrath upon his beloved son, to the creation of eternal hell for all those who do not repent, God has expressed with absolute clarity and perfect repetition that He absolutely abhors our sin. And that is the point here that God makes about Saul and his sin. God grabs our attention by ascribing human emotions to himself to show us vividly just how much he hates Saul's partial obedience. And so, before we try to put at ease the tension that is in our hearts because of the paradox that we find in how a God who is all-wise and all-knowing and all-powerful and in complete control and is immutable, that means He doesn't change, can let a king so foolish rule over his people and be so willing to say of himself that he regrets. Let's let the text teach us what it is intended to teach us. God hates partial Obedience. Later, not today, we'll come back and try to answer that question that's rattling in our finite brains. But for now, let's go with the story. Notice briefly the way that this affected Samuel in verse 11 and 12. 
I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not carried out my commands. And Samuel, at the end of verse 11, was distressed and cried out to Yahweh all night. Then he arose early in the morning to meet Saul. And we see here in Samuel's response, further God's gracious accommodation to man. He uses the man of God to carry his message to his people, in this case, from Samuel to Saul. But notice, first of all, Samuel becomes distressed, or actually the word is furious. Samuel is downright angry. I mean, consider Samuel's position here for a moment. He has tried to be faithful, has devoted his whole life to God and to God's people, and really was reluctant about the king concept in the first place. When the people chanted for a king, he was saying, no, Yahweh's our king. But he simply did exactly what God commanded him to do, and he continued to preach the word of God faithfully, even in moments when it could have cost him greatly. And now, by all appearances, utter failure. Almost no results of his tireless effort. What would become become of the king of the people, of Samuel, of Yahweh's reputation? And we're not told explicitly what Samuel was angry about, but perhaps he was moved to the same disposition as Yahweh about Saul's disobedience, as he spent the whole night crying out to Yahweh. And when you get to his interaction with Saul, there seems to be a tone of holy anger in Samuel. Just again to point out, what does he do with this distress? What does he do with this fury in his heart? He cries out to Yahweh all night. What a place to go in the midst of atrocity. Here is the faithful man of God, broken over the ravaging damage of sin in the lives of God's people. We can see where his heart ends up when he gets up early the next morning to do the next right thing which really is a grace gift to Saul from God. That Samuel would get up to confront Saul's sin. He he goes to faithfully declare the word of Yahweh to the king, regardless of the consequences that might transpire. This is what faithfulness in ministry looks like. It is not the results that matter, but obedience. It's not about avoiding adversity, but devotion to God's word. We don't care about the approval of man, but submission to God. And that's Samuel. And God's accommodating grace is seen not in a toning down of a matter, but in an emphatic expression of how God sees the issue. And so what do you do then? When God graciously brings his word to bear upon your life when you have sinned against him. How do you respond when the man of God with the word of God highlights in the providence of God your sin? That you know that you need to deal with. You've been there before. And God is putting his figurative thumb uh, uh, on the pressure point of your sin. What do you do? Do you excuse it away? Do you try to tone it down and confess with some sort of caveat? Do you blame it on others? Things like, you have no idea how hard I have worked. Uh, You have no idea how difficult my spouse is. Uh, You have no idea how annoying my boss is or or what my week has been like. Ad infinitum. Or, 
Do you simply confess it? Admit it before God and receive His ever-ready forgiveness. Just, Just humble yourself and align your way to the Lord. Because you tell me, what is worse? Let's just compare David's sin to Saul's sin. I mean, is it worse to almost completely fulfill God's word and and wipe out an entire people group? Or is it worse to commit adultery, murder, and live in nine months of deceit? And yet consider the overwhelming grace of God upon David at an instance when he confessed his sin to God and God gave him pardon. It's not that we will be perfect in our obedience. Oh, I wish we could be. But it's that we would respond to the word of God when we see so clearly, this is my issue. Well, what does Saul do when God sends his gracious yet forceful word to him? Well, it's another one of his trademark moves. Number four. Consider the blame-shifting argument. The blame-shifting argument. With Saul, someone or something else is always to blame. It is never simply Saul's fault when it comes to his disobedience. Remember uh, chapter 13 and verse 11 when... Jonathan had had a victory and it had stirred the the Philistines against the Israelites. And Saul had gone to Gilgal and so far up to this point had obeyed the command from God given given to Saul through Samuel. And he was supposed to wait there until Samuel came and gave the offering. But he didn't wait. He decided to take matters into his own hands. And he disobeyed God. And Samuel comes and says in verse 11, What have you done in 1 Samuel 13? And Saul said, Because I saw the people were scattering from me. In other words, circumstances were looking really bad for me. And that you did not come within the appointed days. And that the Philistines were assembling at Michmash. They were, they were honing in on Saul and his small army. Therefore I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, Gilgal and I have not asked the favor of Yahweh. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. All the excuses from Saul. And when we look at that, we kind of have sympathy there. (laughs) In one sense, we kind of empathize with Saul to say, well, what would I do in that situation? For Saul, it was always somebody else's fault. And he's back at it again here in 1 Samuel 15. In verse 12, Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and it was told Samuel, saying, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself, then turned and proceeded on down to Gilgal. Again, there we saw some of the reason for Saul's disobedience comes from his own pride. He, he captured Agag the king and wants to say, hey, look at what I have done. So verse 13, Samuel came to Saul and And this should surprise us. Saul said to him. Here's passive Saul. Being the first one to speak up. What's going on? Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him. Blessed are you of Yahweh. I have carried out the command of Yahweh. Prideful Saul greets Samuel and speaks first. And he's almost cheerful 
Or perhaps Saul really didn't think that he had, really did think that he had listened to Yahweh's voice. Maybe his conscience was so seared that he really thought that what he was doing was doing God a favor. Maybe he really didn't see it. I mean, it has been some time since 1 Samuel 13. Uh, Some people say perhaps 20 years have gone by since his first act of defiance in chapter 13 and no repentance. I mean, that is a long time to solidify your heart, to sear your conscience, to numb the noise. Nonetheless, he expressed the exact opposite of what Yahweh had told Samuel. And that is not where you want to be. Verse 14. Notice this dramatic dialogue between Samuel and Saul. But Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? And you can almost hear the fury in Samuel's tone. What are you talking about, Saul? (laughs) How can you say you obeyed the voice of God when I can hear the very sheep you were supposed to destroy? The sheep and the oxen become a symbol of the noise that is in Samuel's or in Saul's heart. And in verse 15, it seems like he's kind of starting to get the memo. And he starts to sense some guilt. Saul said, they, referring to his army, have brought them from the Amalekites. For the people spared, that word spared is the exact same word as in verse 3 where they are told not to spare, Or verse 2. They, people spared the best of the sheep and oxen to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. But the rest we have utterly destroyed. Again, it seems that Saul has kind of gotten the memo and we weren't there to see it. But perhaps now Saul is red-faced in his guilt and, and maybe even says this with a little bit of a, a lump in his throat. But you can tell there is some sort of guilty conscience with Saul because he won't take the blame. They brought the sheep back. And he won't call Yahweh his God. They came to sacrifice to Yahweh your God, Samuel. Verse 16. Then Samuel said to Saul, Wait and let me tell you what Yahweh said to me last night. Saul said, speak. And that word for wait is the same as in Psalm 46.10 where it says, Be still and know that I am God. Be still. Samuel is saying, stop right there. Listen to what God told me. Verse 17. Samuel said, is it not true, though you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel? And Yahweh anointed you king over Israel. And Yahweh sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Verse 17 here highlights again the authority of Yahweh. Didn't God place you here? And the grace of Yahweh at the same time, God is the one that placed Saul in this lofty, privileged position over his chosen people. Saul, isn't God the one that did this for you? Isn't God the one who gave you this command? Isn't God the one that put you in this position? Saul, don't you understand you are responsible to God? So God is in charge, and what a grace gift. And verse 18, not only that, but he gave you clear commands. Saul, intense and frightening, but abundantly clear. So there's no excuse for Saul. God put you in this position. He tells you to do something. He'll give you the strength to do it. So verse 19, a heart-piercing question. 
Why did you not obey the voice of Yahweh? And obey there is the Shema. Why did you not listen so as to obey the voice of God? In light of God's authority and in light of his grace, why did you not listen to him, Saul? Well, King Saul responds in verse 20 and 21. Again, notice the blame-shifting argument here. Then Saul said to Samuel, I did obey the voice of Yahweh and went on the mission on which Yahweh sent me and have brought back Agag, the king of Amalekite, and have utterly destroyed the Amalekites. But the people took some of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the choices of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to Yahweh, your God, at Gilgal. Are you kidding me, Saul? (laughs) Samuel has been clear for you. Here, Saul blames the people and claims partial obedience. It's like when you tell your children, or I remember this for me as a child, you know, go and clean up your room. And, and by that time, you know, knowing how to do it, go and clean it up. But I leave out my best favorite toy because I'm going to play with it. Some good reasoning there. <laughs> Just want to play with my best toy. I basically did what they said. But I won't have to dig it back out later. I want to play with it now. The reality is I did not obey The same here for Saul. He just wanted to hold the best and say, you know what? Look what I did. And how we often try to rationalize our disobedience with the claim of partial obedience. (laughs) When disobedience is exposed, how quick we are to shift the blame or shift the focus onto someone or something else so as to alleviate the noise that escalates in our souls. You see, partial obedience is the poison we knowingly drink, hoping that it is diluted enough not to harm us on its way down hoping that there will be no consequences for leaving sin unaddressed, hoping that we will be spiritual enough, if not in God's eyes, at least in the eyes of other Christians or in comparison with other Christians, so that we can feel good about our half-hearted effort to walk worthy of the Lord. We seem so willing to let sin remain in our lives. Like little pets that seem so innocent on the outside, but bite and wound and grow as we feed them. I would often go to my great-grandpa and grandma's house growing up. And it was super boring. They didn't really have a ton of toys for us to play with, which is fine. They had a basketball hoop in the back. (laughs) And I remember only, I think only two times out of the many, many times we went there getting to be able to go out there and play basketball. Maybe I'm thinking about only myself here, but why couldn't we go play? It's because they had a dog back there whose name was Rex. And he was vicious and mean. And if we would go out there it is likely that he would kill us. What's weird about that is not just that it would harm us, but the owner, my grandpa and grandma, who would go out there, he would attack them. (laughs) Regularly they would get bitten when they would go out there to get their raspberries that they would grow in, in their plants in the back. It just made no sense. To keep something around and feed it and spend money on it when it presented such a clear and present danger to them. 
But that is us. Until that moment, the God in his infinite wisdom brings to the surface the things that we have been trying to hide. Like the bleeding sheep that mimicked Saul's noisy soul, our sin is sure to find us out. (laughs) He says, but the people did it. And by the way, they want to sacrifice to Yahweh your God. Saul is acting as if he can manipulate God by perhaps giving a peace offering in the place of his submission and obedience. Ever get in a fight with your spouse? I'll speak from my own experience in in the far past. And you don't really want to deal with the issue. You know you're to blame and you're kind of like, well... I'm going to go get her flowers so we can kind of calm this situation down a little bit. You know, hoping to kind of bribe her affection. You might be able to manipulate your wife's emotions or vice versa, but not our impassable God. He sees right through you. And most of the time, so does our spouse, right? And God through his faithful prophet, does not let Saul off the hook. Yahweh is not so impressed with Saul's last-minute afterthought to offer him some religious bribe. Rabbit-foot theology might make some headway with the Pope, but not a true man of God. And so Samuel, with God's double-edged sword, goes straight to the heart of Saul before he hacks To pieces, the king, Agag, he pierces Saul's heart spiritually. Which brings us to the final point that we'll get to today. Sharp accuracy. Number five. Consider the sharp accuracy of God's word. Look at verses 22 through 23. Samuel said, Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of Yahweh, he has also rejected you from being king. Listen. As Hebrews 4.12 expresses, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It goes right for the insides, spiritually speaking. Here, Samuel highlights the priority of God's word as obedience, and here, God's word calls sin, sin. And this is the unpleasant nature of God's word at times. Because again, as the writer of Hebrews says in in verse 13 of Hebrews 4, there's no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. You can't hide your motives and your decisions from God. God knows what is really going on and everything is exposed before him. God sees everything. And God's word has pinpoint, sharp accuracy when it comes to our sin. So look again at verse 22. Has Yahweh as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. Samuel asks the question and then answers it. He is tired of listening to Saul speak. And this is what he says. Saul, your formal worship means nothing without true inner submission and lifestyle obedience. You cannot substitute ceremony for submission or corporate worship for continual obedience. It's not as if God needs donations from us. 
God wants our hearts, not because He needs them. He is not dependent upon us. Rather, we as His creatures are dependent upon Him and He demands our obedience. Let's let this permeate within our hearts for a moment. Obedience means more to God than coming and participating in what we do here week after week apart. I mean, obedience means more than that. Not that sacrifice and ceremonial worship is not important to God, but the facade is what God hates. I love how one commentator put it. He says, Samuel negates sacrifice, not absolutely, but relatively. He is saying that formal worship cannot be substituted for obedient life. External devotions for internal submission. He says, your your gloria patri, that is, glory to God with your lips. And Apostles' Creed and Christian luncheons and all-star Bible conferences, none of these matter unless you are keeping Christ's commandments. Samuel's heart-piercing question and knife-twisting affirmation here reverberates throughout the Old Testament. David would get it in Psalm 51 after his sin and now confession after he had committed adultery and murder and was confronted by the prophet Nathan he would cry out and say be gracious to me O God and in verse in Psalm 51 and verse 16 it says for you speaking to God you do not delight in sacrifice otherwise I would give it you are not pleased with burnt offering The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Proverbs 15.8 expresses that God does not take pleasure in the sacrifices of the wicked. Jeremiah chapter 6 in verses 19 through 20, God expresses... Hear, O earth, behold, I am bringing disaster on this people, the fruit of their plans, because they have not listened to my words. For as for my law, and as for my law, they have rejected it also. For what purpose does frankincense come to me from Sheba, and the sweet uh, cane from a distant land? Your burnt offerings are not acceptable, and your sacrifices are not pleasing to me. Hosea, chapter six, and verse six. For I delight in loyalty rather than sacrifice, God says, and in the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Micah 6, famous verses 6 through 8. What then, what, with what shall I come to Yahweh and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come to him with burnt offerings, with yearling calves? Does Yahweh take delight in thousands of rams and ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I present my firstborn for my rebellious acts, the fruit of my body, for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does Yahweh require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? Don't just come to make sacrifices without submission in your heart to God. And Jesus would continue on the same exact Truth in Luke chapter 6 and at the end of him preaching to his disciples giving Luke's version of the, the Beatitudes. Verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and acts on them, I will show you whom he is like. He is like a man building a house with, who dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. And when a flood occurred, the torrent burst against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who has heard and has not acted accordingly is like a man who built a house on the ground without any foundation. And the torrent burst against it and immediately it collapsed and the ruin of that house was great. See, God wants us to be like the psalmist in Psalm 119, where he says to delight in his commandments. 
to derive our greatest pleasure from doing what God tells us to do. Is that your greatest joy? God, tell me what to do. And then the dagger digs deeper in verse 23. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. You see, what Saul was unwilling to admit, God's word through the prophet Samuel would confront with pinpoint accuracy. And to understand what Yahweh through Samuel has been getting at in this dramatic dialogue, you have to understand and accept God's evaluation of Saul's lack of obedience. To be sure, Yahweh does not see Saul's actions as partial obedience. He sees them as outright rebellion, pride, and utter pagan idolatry. To not listen to the voice of Yahweh, to not obey Yahweh right away, all the way, with a happy heart, is rebellion and arrogance. It's actually resisting God's authority, and it's filled with conceit, presumption, and outright pagan idolatry. To know God's word and deliberately disobey it is to put ourselves above God and therefore become our own God. This is the vilest form of idolatry, as one commentator put it. In other words, it's one thing for sinners who are ignorant of divine truth to sin and rebel and worship false gods, but it is a whole other thing when the believer who knows and understands divine truth willfully disregards it. And yet we think so lightly of our sin. Though God has given us His Son and His Word and His Spirit and His people, we still reject His kingship in actual pride and rebellion which amounts to idolatry. Our partial obedience is pagan worship before God. Sometimes it's difficult to see the sinfulness of sin to the casual eye. Or when compared to others. But God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance. And for all intents and purposes, it looked like Saul mostly obeyed. But God looks at the heart, and if we look close enough here, Saul's actions and his words revealed his heart, and God expressed through Samuel that Saul's heart was rebellious, like a worshiper with the pagans. As one commentator put it, you may not see the sinfulness of sin on its surface. If we are to have accurate thinking about sin, Saul's or ours, We must see beyond the polite exterior that can even talk of holding worship services at Gilgal to what is beneath the surface or behind the scenes. He says, Saul did not listen to Yahweh's voice. He did not obey Yahweh's clear command. And you don't call that alternate religious understanding or some expression of theological pluralism or a quest for finding one's identity. He says it is rebellion, it is arrogance, it is idolatry. And to reject Yahweh's word, he goes on further, is to reject Yahweh himself. To reject his authority in a word is to reject his kingship. Since Saul had rejected Yahweh as king over him, Yahweh had rejected Saul as king over his people. I love how he puts it here. All the smoke and fat on Gilgal's altar would never replace the pleasure God could have derived from the living sacrifice of Saul's will. So how then does Saul respond to this ever clear and accurate diagnosis of his sin? We'll have to answer that question next time. But as we come to the Lord's table this morning, pause and consider your own life. This is God's view of our partial obedience. It is sin, as vile as idolatry. So, what do we do when we recognize that we have sinned? When we disobey God, 
What should we do when we commit idolatry before his eyes? We should confess our sins with no excuses and ask the Lord to renew our hearts and our minds once again so that we can truly worship him as he demands. And this, this is what makes Christ's perfect obedience such good news for us. Our hope is not based on our fickle obedience, but on Christ's full obedience. Both actively and passively, as theologians call it. He did what God commanded him to do all the way, and in his not in passivity, but in the sense of him suffering, he obeyed God all the way to death, even death on a cross, on behalf of you and on behalf of me. And so when we come to this table, we don't take boasting in perhaps our stellar effort this last week. And we don't revel in self-pity based upon our lack of stellar effort this week. But we rest fully on the complete and finished obedience of Christ on our behalf. Father, thank you for your grace. Our hearts resonate with Saul. Oh, how often... We don't quite obey you. But help us, O Lord, not to respond the same way as he did, but rather in humble confession, agreement with you, and call sin, sin. Realign our hearts for the glory of Christ. Amen.